Oh, my glasses are dirty. How? What a rookie mistake, huh? I just got to clean galoshes, glasses. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay. <clears throat> we got to get our banner up. Okay. Well, yeah. Hey, ho. What's going on? Welcome to another episode of the Jeff Show, but I'm also broadcasting to Little Takahars on Facebook, doing a, a one-two punch combo here tonight. I've been wanting to make this video for some time and simply just put it off. Uh, you know, this is normally I broadcast almost every day, or at least I do some sort of YouTube upload almost every single day at this point. And this is, I think it's like three or four days that I've gone since I, when did I broadcast last? I did, oh, I went live with uh, Tracy from Blitzkid on Thursday. So this is my first broadcast since Thursday. It's been three days, but it feels like, it feels like an eternity. I, I, I start to go have withdrawals if I'm not uh, streaming live to YouTube. <laughs> kind of funny how that works. Tonight's show is brought to you by Bubbly Seltzer. Take a look. Bubbly, that's the flavor we're drinking. It's the white peach ginger bubbly. Woo! Ah, okay. Delicious. <clears throat> um, so tonight we're talking Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I found a great little article that I really feel like I could riff on. Um, Night of the Living Dead. So people ask me, <clears throat> all right, I'm going into my thing. Ready? By the way. Join us on YouTube, on the YouTube channel, because YouTube is where the main content is at. You're going to be able to see the article that I share and whatnot, just saying that um, for those of you on Facebook. So people ask me from time to time, Jeff, what is your favorite movie? What is your single most favorite movie? Um, and the truth of the matter is I don't have a single most favorite movie. How could anybody have a single most favorite movie? I know some people, excuse me. I know some people do have a single most favorite movie, but, you know, being the passionate, passionate lover that I am of, of movies and cinema and whatnot, I find it incredibly difficult to pick and choose one title. So when I tick all the boxes, then, you know, you also have to tip, tick all the boxes, not just something, you know, a favorite movie needs to have rewatch value. You have to be able to rewatch it over and over and over again. A favorite movie has to, um, you know, elicit some sort of response, have some sort of sentimental value. You know, there's a lot of different um, factors that lead to one having a favorite film or a favorite film of all time. Um, for me, uh, you know, it goes even deeper than that. Um, and so for me, my all-time favorite film is the original Night of the Living Dead from 1968 for the social commentary, because of the filmmaking, um, the story, the characters. Um, it's, it's, it's a perfect, like, you know, I love that there's a whole Night of the Living Dead universe. And it's, of course, it should, something like that should spawn a Night of the Living Dead universe. But if there was no Night of the Living Dead universe and Night of the Living Dead was its own self-contained film, Night of the Living Dead would be perfect by itself. It's it's like a wrapped in a perfect package, um, and so I love it for for all these reasons and more. I, I would get more in depth about it, but we're going to talk about that. 
uh, as it relates to its remake. And that's what we're here to talk about tonight. We're actually talking about the remake of Night of Living Dead. Um, but so, you know, the other thing too is it's like, it's like, I love the Night of Living Dead remake. I really love Night of Living Dead 1990. Not all the other ones. See, Night of Living Dead went into the public domain and it allowed a lot of people to use that name or try to cash in or, or profit on that name by making um, you know, a variety of atrocious sequels. Like there's Night of Living Dead 3D, um, which has which has uh, Jeffrey Combs in it, which really bums me out. I'm like, I feel like that was a paycheck for Jeffrey Combs. I get it. I get it. You know, actors got to eat. Jeffrey Combs got that offer and probably did it. I don't know what why else he would do that film. It was not a good film. It also has Sid Haig and uh, the the Wishmaster guy is, is in it. It's it's a terrible film. Uh, there's Night of Living Dead Resurrection. That's terrible too. I mean, just a lot of stuff. You know, in terms of remakes with Night of the Living Dead, not good, not good. But the 1990 Night of the Living Dead remake, it, for me, is a gold standard when it comes to remakes. So now we're gonna we're gonna talk about remakes right before we get to the the main course here. Um, you know, I I've been sprouting this a lot from all of my platforms. I've been saying this for quite some time. Don't remake. Uh, good movies remake bad movies with good ideas remake rawhead rex remake you know stuff like that remake um oh god what's the uh the the, the werewolf movie it's from 1974 it's a whodunit who's the werewolf uh i forget the name of it remake that film remake chopping mall there's so many movies that could be remade that are, have a really great hook but they're just not executed properly however there are some exceptions to this rule where, and one of them being Night of the Living Dead 1990, The Blob 1988, The Fly 1986, and The Thing 1982. For some reason, and I know 19, Night of the Living Dead 1990 technically is, it's on the cusp of the 90s and the 80s, but I would really put it more firmly in the 80s, considering that it was probably developed in 1989. So Night of Living Dead, you know, we had this incredible renaissance of, of remakes, Invasion, Invaders from Mars, too, in 1985. We had this incredible renaissance of remakes in, in the 80s, and it started with The Thing. It continued with The Fly. It, it continued with The Blob. It continued, and it ended with, you know, uh, Night of Living Dead. These, these four films, really, it started two years earlier with Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1978, which is a flawless phenomenal remake again so you do have some examples where where a great idea and a great film can be redone in a great way sometimes doing the exact same thing and sometimes riffing on it and i would say more than anything the the two films that are very faithful to the source material while doing a riff and doing a wonderful riff would be The Blob 1988, in which case The Blob 1988 surpasses the original Blob from 1958, uh, and Night of the Living Dead 1990, which does not surpass 1968, but is such a wonderful, incredible film on its own. Now, how does a film, uh, how does a, a film like Night of the Living Dead, which is so revered, so wonderful, so flawless, such a masterpiece, how does it uh, uh, make it pass all of the, the the pitfalls and trials and tribulations that sort of gunk up remakes and make them bad? Um, there are some remakes out there that are sort of uh, they're 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 good, but they're flawed. They're flawed. A great example for me, a near perfect remake for me is 
is Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead from 2004. This film is almost a almost a good remake. Um, for me, the thing that I always get tripped up on is the subplot spoilers for a 17 year old film. The subplot where the girl has to, they needed the girl, they needed to create a sense of danger. So the girl um, goes to, what's it called? Uh, she goes across to, to, to where Andy is in the gun store to get her, her, her dog back, which allows them to, to get ammo. It's like a real sort of a contrived plot, uh, plot twist sort of situation, not plot twist, just plot convenience, uh, a plot, a contrived plot element. They have to rescue the dog. And then I feel like in reality, they wouldn't rescue the dog. They would not risk, their their the the well-being of the whole party of survivors just for a dog it just would not happen and so um so so they 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 have to go and save her in addition to the dog and she's trapped in a closet it's really silly and it really takes me out of what is otherwise almost a perfect remake um you know uh the, i would also say that dawn of the dead remake doesn't have a soul in the same way that uh, the original Dawn of the Dead had really has a lot of soul in it, in the sense of it has like a lot of uh, substance. The Dawn of the Dead remake, it's missing all of that wonderful characterization that you get in the original. The characters are fleshed out, but there's just it's missing that 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 essence that made Dawn of the Dead so special. I, I can't describe it. It feels more clinical. It feels like a clinical remake. Maybe that's what it is. It doesn't. Dawn of the Dead 2004 doesn't have any heart. Night of the Living Dead 1990 has so much heart. Um, and we're going to get into it. Why? Uh, we're going to get into reasons why that is. Now, um, you know, generally, as you can see, I just spent 10 minutes kind of talking out of the side of my neck. And that's why I love to have articles or content to sort of keep me uh, on, on a path or allow me, inspire me to sort of riff on whatever it is that I'm doing. because. If I if if I just talk out of the side of my head with nothing, then sometimes we might end up in a place so far away from a Night of Living Dead 1990 remake that you know we'll never find we'll never find our way back to you know the the topic at discussion. So, like right now, where I'm having a pothole. Sorry. Um, so Ranker is this website on the internet. Um, they have pretty good articles. I like the Ranker, Ranker kind of articles. Kind of reminds me of cracked.com for anybody who reads Cracked. Um, used to be a you know a magazine like Mad Magazine, they went all digital um when when magazine publishing was no longer so lucrative, understandably so. Um so I found this article on Ranker. And we're gonna we're gonna look at it. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it right now. So I'm gonna share my little screen here, and we're gonna get into it. <clears throat> so here it is: Tom Savini's 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead deserves way more credit than it gets. Now, I think that's not 100% true at this point in time. I think that that it does get the. I think it does get. Uh, uh, the credit that it deserves now. Um, but, you know, I want to say like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 15, no, really 15 years ago and before, even in the 90s, nobody really, nobody really did give it the credit that it deserved. It was never re uh, revered or regaled as a, as a good remake. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. It's, I feel like people were very indifferent uh, towards it. And then of course, there's what John Russo did in 1998 for the 30th anniversary. He went back and 
and reshot 15 minutes that he inserted into Night of the Living Dead, butchering the film, just butchered the film, and uh, uh, created a situation where this, where the Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead could never happen because the there's a cure, and I don't know, it's ridiculous, and there's like a preacher guy. It's very foolish, and again, no disrespect to John Russo, um, you know, a guy who, who always is looking to make a buck, um, as any one of us would want to from our intellectual property. This is John Russo's uh, intellectual property in the same way that it's Russ Strider's in the same way that it's George Romero's. And, you know, those guys did not get to make the money that they could have or should have made with Night of the Living Dead. So w- there were so many times where where Night of the Living Dead, you know, att- got exploited. Most recently, before George Romero died in 2017, in anticipation for the 50th anniversary, George oversaw a, a, a restoration that was done by Janice, who do, it does does the theatrical distribution for the Criterion uh, series, which is you know the, one of the creme de la creme of of bootleg art house cinema that preserves you know films of note. And so Night of the Living Dead got this beautiful 4K restoration, beautiful audio, uh, audio restoration. All under the super super, all being supervised by George Romero or posthumously by George Romero through his notes, and finally the Image Ten group. The Image Ten was the the ten people that that invested in the original Night of the Living Dead hundred hundred thousand dollars. Finally got you know their film properly trademarked in the way that it should have been from the very beginning. So Night of the Living Dead is not quite in the public domain the way it used to be. Um, all those years ago, or for all these years, uh, which which famously started because when they changed the title of the movie, the original title of the movie was The Night of the Anubis. Anubis meaning, or Night of the Flesh Eaters was another title. And they decided to change it to Night of the Living Dead at the last moment, chopping off the copyright at the beginning, which was under the title card. You'll see in a lot of those older films, you'll see at the very beginning of the film when you're doing a public ex- exhibition, you put the copyright at the beginning of the work and at the end of the work. Um, and you do that uh, to ensure that it's copyrighted. But when you take that off and you um, you 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 show it off, essentially, it allows people to it, it it sends it into the public domain. I don't know why that happens, but it does happen, um, and it's it's a tragedy. It's a real shame. Um, Tom Savini's 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead deserves way more credit than it gets by Orrin Gray. Remakes get a bad rap, especially remakes of films as universally beloved as George Romero's genre-defining 1968 classic, Night of the Living Dead. But as a remake of horror classics, but as far as remakes, but as remakes of horror classics go, they don't come much more respectful than Tom Savini's 1990 version of Night of the Living Dead. It was, after all, written by George Romero himself. That's right, George wrote this um, this second version of Night of the Living Dead. And it reunited Romero with many of the people he had worked with on the original film for the first time in 20 years. The result is a picture that is virtually unique amongst horror movie remakes for both taking bold chances with classic material. That's exactly, that's the perfect way to describe what is happening. It takes bold chances with classic material while also not striking off in an entirely new direction. And that's what I was talking about before. I think the blob does does this exact thing. The blob follows the original story beats of the original blob in 1958, but just flushes out everything. It's like, hey, let's take the blob and then like put it in like a Stephen King town. That's what they're doing. They're like, hey, 
or, or, or let's, let's squeeze the blob. If like Stephen King was a mesh, <laughs> you know, like a, like a mesh screen, let's push the blob through Stephen King mesh filter. And that's what the blob 1988 is. And of course it's direct. It's, um, it's not directed. It's directed by Chuck Russell, who also did uh, The Mask, but it's written by Frank Darabont, who would do wonders with Stephen King's material with The Mist and Shawshank Redemption and yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, it's not the instant classic that the first film was, but it flexes new muscles, expands some of Romero's themes and reimagines Barbara as a tough action hero. It sure does. Plus jaw-dropping zombie effects by Tom Savini and his crew who had been, who had originally been invited to work on the original, but was unable to, because he was fighting in Vietnam. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I knew that Tom was not involved with the original night of the living dead, but I didn't know it was because uh, he had, I, I knew he had gone to Vietnam as well, but I didn't know that that was specifically the reason why he didn't work on it. Uh, and an early career performance by Tony Todd, making this one remake that is absolutely worth checking out uh, or giving it a second look. Um, there's a lot more meat on these bones than you might expect. Now, I'm going to say right off the bat, the thing that the my number one critique of the Night of Living Dead remake is that it is not gorier than, it, or it's not as gory as it should be. By 1990, by the late 80s, the, the late 80s ushered in practical effects at the height of the, at the height of their powers meaning that that between the technology and you know what people had figured out how to do with practical effects there is absolutely no reason for night of living dead 1990 to not be gorier than it already was especially with tom savini's reputation especially when you think about how gory the original was which is a little tame in some areas but then in other areas you have like a dead girl killing her own mother with a spade and eating her, eating her body and eating her father. It's pretty gruesome. And you don't quite get that. This this remake, even though it, it's rated R, it, it actually kind of feels like it could be PG-13 uh, or even PG. It, it feels very child safe. Uh, I know that sounds weird to say, but it kind of just doesn't have, I don't feel that same sense of danger that I felt with the original Night of the Living Dead or dawn of the dead or day of the dead it doesn't have that that kind of danger and that's where it that's where it flounders if anything um and that could be because of the studios made tom savini cut some stuff who knows uh another thing that that night of living dead 1990 has going for it I, again i am reading this blind i have not read this article i just saw the title and agreed with it and have have definitely felt that myself and felt like this would be a great topic to do another thing that that really helps night of living dead is you have the director is also a special effects whiz. This allows, and that's why I don't understand why Night of Living Dead 1990. We'll just call it No Told 90. That's what when I worked, I still, you know, I worked on a, a documentary about George Romero uh, that never came out. It's called Dawn of the De uh, Dead On. Funny, I've worked on a lot of documentaries that have never come out. <laughs> um, Dead On: The Life and Times of George Romero. Go look that up. I was an assistant editor on that when I went to school in Chicago, and. Um, why am I bringing that up right now? Because why the hell was I bringing that up just now? I was talking about, why the hell was I just talking about that? Um, it had to do with the fact that, oh, talking about Tom Savini, talking about um, the fact that he is, oh, that, that because he's a special effects guy, um, it would inform 
his direction, which is why I'm sort of baffled that no, no told 1990. Oh, that's not, sorry. I'm so, I'm so discombobulated tonight. You guys, we call it no told because when I worked on the documentary dead on the life and times of George Romero, our, our shorthand was no told. That's what, how we referred to night of living dead. So instead of saying night of living dead, we would just say no told, which is spelled obviously just, and you don't even have the O in there. It's N O. Well, you have one O. That's how we spelled it. No told. Ready? Here you'll see it in one second. No told. That's no told. So, so no told ninety. Um, you would. I, I'd have to imagine that it was heavily cut by the studio. I know there's a work print out there floating out there. I wonder if that has um, more gore in it. Uh, but in, in any case, this is the one area where where Night of Living Dead No Told ninety is is really weak sauce. It just doesn't 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 do it for me. So the first factor here, it was written by George Romero and expand and expands on, on many of his themes. Uh, more than 20 years after the release of his 1968 classic, the father of the modern zombie movie. Now zombies had existed for a long time. Zombies come from uh, uh, voodoo, which is a type of religion found in the Caribbean in, 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 um, in uh, you know, it's a Haitian sort of Caribbean religion uh, that combines a lot of different stuff. Uh, uh, down there uh, in, in that area. And, uh, you know, before George Romero, zombies were essentially slaves. They were, they were mindless slaves. Sometimes they were dead. Sometimes they were not, who did the bidding of a master. George Romero changed all that when he read the book uh, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson and adapted it uh, into uh, and, and changed it from, from being vampires to zombies. So he basically was like, okay, I'm going to create this, this, this cannibal, this cannibal like uh, creature that, um, you know, walks around. He, he, he reinvented the, the, the idea of what a zombie is. Donald says, I watched it in the theater when it first came out. That's awesome. What kind of reaction, Donald, did you have when you, when you watched it in the theater? What did it make you feel? Uh, how does it compare Donald to the original for you personally? So George reinvented this, and now here he is again taking another crack at his masterpiece. Um, he came back as the screenwriter. While he gave director Tom Savini free reign to make changes to the original story, Romero's vision is very much at play in The New Night. Uh, and having spent two ensuing decades watching people analyze, overanalyze, and react to his previous zombie films, Romero knew how to put the focus where he wanted it to go. That's very interesting, man. That's very interesting. Right. Flesh-eating ghouls. And that's true. It's like, here's a filmmaker who gets to watch his film become this masterpiece, watch it get analyzed, and then he gets to write it ground up if he wants to and sort of riff on, on differences from the original. Um, it's practically unheard of. It's practically unheard of in horror filmmaking. It's practically unheard of in genre filmmaking or filmmaking in general. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, there was a lot of, when, he, when, he, when they say overanalyze, what they're referring to is the fact that Ben is a black guy. So Ben, the main character, is not written to be any specific race in the original script, right? Um, when Dwayne... Jones came in to read what's Dwayne Jones? Oh my god, am I messing up his name? I'd be very embarrassed if I am not saying his name 
right yet, of course. Dwayne Jones, when Dwayne Jones, who's a classically trained actor, came in to audition for the part, they decided he was the best man for the job. And, you know, again, it was it was not meant to necessarily be a white actor or a black, act, black actor, but it, you know, ended up being a, uh, they ended up choosing a black guy. And what that did was, and, uh, and you know, it's funny, when people say to me today, like, oh, racism doesn't exist in America today, blah, 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 blah. All you have to do is look at a movie like Night of the Living Dead, and you could see how racism still exists today. What Night of the Living Dead does is it takes all of the all of the conflict, all of the tension, everything that's happening in the original Night of the Living Dead is heightened by the fact that it's occurring between two different people of two different skin colors at the height of of the civil rights movement. Right in 1968, you know, even though these 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 outsider filmmakers from from Pittsburgh, right outside of Pittsburgh, they're not really thinking about it like that. They ended up infusing racial tension into their story by just changing the color of one of their characters, because the fact that that Harry Cooper doesn't like Ben. On the surface, it's because Ben is an alpha and Harry is an alpha, or it's two alphas with two alpha egos trying to decide what's best for this group of survivors in this farmhouse. But underneath the surface is this idea that there is uh, this white guy doesn't like this black guy simply because he might be black. And that's not ever said or proven or yada, yada, yada. It's subtext that's simply there through casting. And so by, by, by making this casting choice, they ended up expanding and fleshing out and, and, and increasing the story. And people, and what they ended up doing was they created the story that people would overanalyze. All of a sudden, George Romero gets lauded and praised for being this genius filmmaker who'd made this decision to cast this black actor in this role and create, you know, all this stuff, you know, again, because think about it like this. Especially, think about it today. Think about it in today's terms. Let's say that Night of Living Dead, 1968, never came out in 1968. Let's say that Night of Living Dead came out in 2018 or 2019 or 2020. Let's say Night of Living Dead came out uh, right after George Floyd was killed, right? Um, and and you saw that the, that they had cast a black guy and a white guy. Uh, everybody would be talking about race. It would all it would be completely about race, you know, uh, and so, so, but at the time, Romero wasn't thinking about doing. Romero wasn't thinking in that way. So it got over. It got overanalyzed, right? It got overanalyzed, and people started dissecting it for all these things. Because here's the thing about art, and this is the amazing thing about art. I think personally, art does belong to the creator. Art does belong to the the, the author of the art. But what happens is when the author authors the art and puts it out into the world uh, and it gets taken in by an audience, the audience might either see or interpret things that, that, that were not necessarily the author's intention. And whether it's the author's intention or not does not make it valid or invalid. You know what I mean? It can everything that was overanalyzed is incredibly valid. And that's the beautiful thing about art. Once you give it to an audience, it's no longer, it doesn't belong to the artist anymore. 
and the audience can decide what is or what they see or do not see. And that's what makes art art, man. That's what makes, you know, when you go to a museum and you see a painting, you know, you, you see a, a, a painting, like an abstract painting, and it makes you feel a feeling. You, you know, it's not like the artist can come up to you and go, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be feeling that feeling when you look at my painting. I wanted you to feel this. The, 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 the audience member, the, the, the audience is going to feel whatever they feel. And it's valid because, because taking an art is a subjective experience. And so people are overanalyzing the things that George did. But then what that allowed George to do was it allowed him to take these concepts that maybe he didn't originally intend, but were always there and flesh them out. And that's kind of what he does in Night of the Living Dead 1990 with more with with really with Barbara's character. Barbara's character is the big difference in the original film. Spoilers: nobody survives, right? Oh, that's what I wanted to say. That's what I wanted to say. I uh, again, I, I'm sorry. I'm like so off tonight, guys. I'm like all over the place. So remember, I was going back and talking about how you know people read read into race or that you know that um, there's te racial tension when maybe racial tension wasn't initially uh, meant to be there. How about this? If Night of the Living Dead came out today and it ended the way that it ended, everybody would go, the, the, why did they shoot? Why did they shoot Ben? Did they shoot him because they thought he was a zombie? Or did they shoot him because he was black? And that's that's what makes the ending to Night of the Living Dead in 1968 and today so shocking. Because when you see, you know, they're they're like, it's like a hick sheriff, right? When you see Ben pop out and you see that he survived the night and that he's moments away from rescue, and all of a sudden this sheriff guy goes, oh, there's one over there. All he says is, there's one over there. And they take aim and they shoot him. Now, George probably meant for there to be irony in that, like, you know, uh, the irony of, of, oh, he survived the night only to be mistaken for a zombie and shot. But considering the racial tension going on or this, this, all this stuff that's happening, you know, um, it can be interpreted that other way. And that's what makes Night of the Living Dead so brilliant. Um, <laughs> boy, this is a whole mess, man. I like, I had like such like a precision idea of what I wanted to do with this. And like, I'm just so all over the place. I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm just not myself tonight. Donald says, I remember. Russo writing a voodoo themed book. Danzig was supposed to have something to do with the screenplay. Really? I've never heard that. And I want to know more about it, Donald. Can you find me any information? Kind of curious to know. Um, in this case, okay, so Romero's vision is very much at play in the new night in the new night, having spent two ensuing decades watching people analyze and overanalyze and react to his previous zombie films. Romero knew how to put the focus where he wanted it to go. In this case, that's squarely on us. My stories are about humans and how they react or fail to react or react stupidly, Romero told Vanity Fair. I'm pointing the finger at us, not the zombies. And yes, that's what makes Night of Living Dead so brilliant and so awesome because. The zombies are just a catalyst for how the human beings react in the situation, as he said there. Um, you know, you, it could be anything. It could have been a hurricane. It could have been a plague. It could have been an earthquake. It could have been meteorites crashing down. Instead, it's zombies. 
here is a catalyst. And then we're watching the real conflict is not between humans and the zombies. The conflict is the humans reacting against each other, um, um, you know, uh, as they deal with this zombie disaster. And that's what, that is at the heart of why I love Night of the Living Dead so much and why it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And really, uh, as a filmmaker, how jealous I am that I wish that I thought of something so brilliant as that. I mean, it's just the best. It's the best. Um, as Felix Vasquez Jr. writes, in an appreciation of the film for Bloody Disgusting, much of the tension in night, in night 1990 centers around the fact that if these characters just stopped for a moment and worked for one goal, they could probably make it through the night in the midst of their nightmare. However, the simple solutions are completely ignored as sheer stubbornness of the characters makes the scenario worse than it has to be. And that, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're giving the credit to 19, 1990 for that, but really the, all that stuff is present in 1968 too. It's the same sort of thing. If Harry and Ben could just work together, you know, and as it turns out, it was Harry that was right. Not Ben. Ben was wrong. Ben wanted, even though we invested in Ben and we wanted, you know, uh, we were rooting for Ben and we were on Ben's side because Harry was such an asshole. As it turns out, you know, to go in the cellar, the cellar really was a death trap. The best option, oh no, sorry, the cellar really was the safe place. You know, that's where Harry wanted to go. Harry wanted to go in the cellar. Ben wanted to stay upstairs. Ben wanted options. He wanted to be able to escape, but he also didn't really know what kind of menace he was dealing with. He just didn't want to be trapped. But as it turns out, the only place that they were truly un not vulnerable was by being in the basement and blocking off the one door, you know? But then one could also argue that they were doomed no matter what, because the problem was them and their conflict. No matter where they were going to go, they would have killed each other and that's what ultimately happens they they can't nobody can survive the night because of 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 human beings and their problems like even barbara in the original night of living dead barbara and we're going to talk about this a little bit later but barbara ultimately dies sacrifices herself it's kind of left a little ambiguous but i mean it, it's you know what you see is you know she gets she gets over over overtaken and, and eaten by her brother and all the all the ghouls that surround her. She she does this one heroic act where she she sacrifices herself to say uh to save um Mrs. Cooper. Um what's her name? Uh Judy? No not Judy. Uh God I forget her name. Uh not Barbara Helen Helen Cooper. She sacrifices her life to save Helen Cooper. Um and so like you know it's like every Every action by human be by these these people uh, causes their downfall, and so it's not it's not um, and it's not uh, Barbara or Helen Cooper that causes uh, Barbara's downfall. It's the fact that Ben and Her Harry can't get along that causes that eventually ends up with Barbara sacrificing herself to save Helen. She never would have had to do that had Ben and Harry not gotten to this thing. And also compounded by Tom and Judy, the two young teenagers who, who are frozen and can't. And, you know, this film, the original film deals with a lot of PTSD. Truly, there's a lot. Night of the Living Dead is a PTSD film um, in some cases, really with Barbara. Uh, and, you know, people say, oh, it's, a, you know, a meditation on the Vietnam War. How? How is it a meditation on the Vietnam War? Well, for one the PTSD from the Vietnam War. Who experiences PTSD? Barbara. 
We're going to get into that though. I don't want to, because they talk about Barbara. I know that Barbara gets mentioned down below when I, when I graze this over. Uh, let's, let's keep reading, shall we? Um, Roger Ebert, uh, ever the humanist, couldn't get on board with Romero's point. The ending of the movie with its bonfire and tortured freeze frame scenes is apparently intended to suggest that we are really no better than the zombies. I, I disagree. He writes in his 1990 review of the film, a conclusion which, even based on the evidence of the characters in this movie, I have trouble accepting. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I do agree. Subtle changes throughout the narrative help amp up suspe suspense. And that's true. Because this is the, what, what ends up happening that, you know, I can tell you personally, as a filmmaker, me as a filmmaker, I made one film, one feature like film thus far, hoping to make some more. I failed at making my second feature like film or wash away. Um, if I had a chance to remake my film, there are so many things I would do differently. Am I ever going to remake my film? Probably never. It's never going to happen. But here Romero is in a place where he gets to remake his first film and he gets to to he's 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 uh accrued a whole bunch of of experience directing all sorts of different horror genre type stuff since he did the original Night of the Living Dead. And now here he is getting to redo his 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 first idea as as a seasoned filmmaker and he's able to improve on a lot of things. However, while I love the ending, I love and respect the ending of No Told 1990, I still think it pales in comparison to the original ending in Night of the Living Dead. Um, subtle changes throughout the narrative help amp up suspense. The 1990 Night of the Living Dead hews pretty closely to the events of the original. It's still written by George Romero, after all, but little changes littered throughout the narrative help to keep ev even familiar viewers on their toes. This night has every opportunity to be a lifeless shot-for-shot -shot copy of the 1968 original. And we've seen what that looks like with American Psycho. Uh, not a, yeah, no, uh, Psycho. Uh, Gus Van Zandt did a shot-for-shot -shot remake of Psycho. And we see how you can remake something shot-for-shot -shot and it doesn't have any soul. Um, uh, uh, th this is what Felix Va Vasquez Jr. says opines at bloody disgusting but savini switches almost every scenario scenario so subtly that it's quite brilliant and it was brilliant that george romero didn't direct this film he got to rewrite it so he got to plot out where it goes but then he turned it over to a fresh set of eyes like tom savini to really sort of run with it and and do these little these little tweaks that really sort of you know uh, uh make it feel fresh despite being the same exact thing Almost from the first frames, it is apparent that this film is going to both follow the original more closely than many remakes while also staking out its own new territory. The classic, they're coming to get you, Barbara line, is still here, though it is given a more 90s twist when Johnny adds, they're horny, Barbara. They've been dead a long time. Even the initial action scene is accompanied by a fake-out nod to the original, uh, and then a much grislier first zombie. Right. So you see a zombie off in the distance, or you see someone off in the distance bleeding profusely from the head, not really sure what's going on. And it's a fake out because you're thinking, oh, is that going to be the, the, the famous Bill Heinzman cemetery zombie? No. Uh, and it's used to create this really great jump scare. Would Romero have thought of that? I don't know. But I, I like to think that that Tom Savini, you know, sort of, really you know brought flavor to to um 
that subversion, because that's what you're doing. You're, you're subverting the audience's expectations, which is the number one thing for making, I think, good, clever art to subvert expectations. And it's, it's like the easiest thing in theory, and it's the hardest thing to execute sometimes. Um, from there, uh, from there to the differences in how the film ends and how Barbara's character arc is portrayed, this new take walks the fine line of following the original film almost beat for beat while also creating something new and surprising for fans. Hell yeah. All right. So now th this next thing, it says Barbara goes from catatonic to Ripley level action hero. Here is where I have, um, I, I take a little, uh, uh, well, let me just stop real quick for these comments. Russo put out a book in 87, movie in 92. Tony Todd was in it. I remember Danzig's name attached to it at one point, huh? Um, from what I remember, it was uh, the book was great. Haven't seen the movie. Interesting. Um, they say Barb goes from catatonic to Ripley-level action hero, and that's true. She does. She she does uh, uh, turn into a badass, and it's awesome. It's She literally goes from wearing a skirt to wearing pants. Um and it's just, it's great, man. And she gets, yeah, like just like this photo you can see here, she gets a hold of the gun and she realizes we can just walk past them. And for all these things, she's able to survive the night. She had, she's also a Romero player. She, she's a uh, Patricia, uh, what's her name? Uh, Patricia O'Neill, I think is her name. And she was a stunt woman for uh, Creepshow 2. Uh, she'd been in a bunch of stuff um, and, and some Tales from the Dark Side stuff. The Barbara of Romero's original, played by Judith O'Day, was rendered virtually catatonic by the horror of what was happening around her. When it came time to update the film for 1990, however, Tom Savini decided to transform Barbara's character from a victim to someone who, uh, oh, someone who decides she has to fight now and cry later. Um, oh, Voodoo Dawn. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Um, I had seen Sigourney Weaver as the great women hero in Alien, Savini said of the decision, and I wanted Barbara to become a woman action hero too. I also think that not enough credit is being given to Gail Ross, uh, who plays, uh, Jesus, what's her name, in um, Fran, Francine in Dawn of the Dead, who isn't quite Ripley. She's not quite the Ripley-level badass that would come a year later in Alien in 1979. But but uh, 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 Fran is is really um, she she's she really is like the the beginnings of the of the of the um, you know the, the the feminine hero that that can uh, uh, you know go toe to toe with any man and what they're doing you know that sort of thing the 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 female protagonist hero that would further get elaborated on it with Day of the Dead. Uh, uh, Lori from Day of the Dead, you know, the main character, she, she's also a feminine badass. And then finally with Barbara in No Told 1990, that's like the, the pinnacle. She's, she's the pinnacle of it. And she's great. She's absolutely great. Um, Savini also already had the perfect person in mind for the part, Patricia Tallman. That's her name, not uh, Patricia Tallman, a stunt woman who Savini had met in college. Tallman had previously worked with Romero and Savini on projects. Oh shit, she was also in Night Riders, Monkey Shines, and Tales from the Crypt, uh, Tales from the Dark Side of the TV series. Not to mention providing stunts in films and TV, including Star Trek: The Next Generation. Just two years after her appearance in Night of the Living Dead, she also showed up briefly in Army of Darkness. As Barbara Tallman gets to swing the pe pendulum from borderline catatonic 
as she uh, as she is when Tony Todd's Ben first finds her to tough as nails all within the space of about 90 minutes. And it's true, man. And her arc is the best arc. It's it's just executed so perfectly. Um, a note, though, about the barber from the original Night of Living Dead 1968. I really think it's unfair to just call her catatonic. She's not just catatonic. She's she's suffering from PTSD. She's seen her brother murdered by a dead man, and she is struggling to uh, hang on to her grip of reality in in the current situation that she's in, this, this disaster situation that she's in. And it's not until the very end of the movie when she finally, you know, uh, gains enough courage to rescue Helen. She breaks out of her her uh, her trance, her you know, her, her catatonic state uh, for enough time to 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 help Helen and save her from a grisly fate that she would end up experiencing herself. Um, almost as if to say uh, she had already she had narrowly escaped it the first time in the cemetery and didn't want to see it happen to someone else and therefore sacrifices herself uh, and ultimately, you know, expressing her humanity in doing so, you know, so it's kind of like a really noble thing that she does. Uh, but I hate that they call it catatonic. It's not catatonic. She's it's PTSD. That's what she's suffering from. Tony is a superb performance as Ben, 100%. Um, Tony Todd just does this role so much justice. He's so perfect in this role. And it, I think it would have been a shame if they had cast the part of Ben should always be a black man. You know, it's, it, it is a black, it is inherently a black character now because of everything that, that we've come to, you know, all the overanalyzing that happened with the original. I think it would be kind of weird. You'd be losing subtext of what night of living dead has come to be about. If you cast a white character. Now, what would be interesting would be to invert that. What if Harry Cooper was a black guy and what if Ben was the white guy? How would that change everything? Now, that's something I would like to see. That's If someone was going to remake uh, Night of the Living Dead today, that's what I would like to see. Invert the situation. A mixture of black and white characters make the Cooper family black and make Ben a, a, a redneck white truck driver who, who uh, finds you know, shelter in um in uh in the farmhouse she had influence she had to influence characters in walking dead of course of course robert kirkman makes no bones about his in the, the influence that night of the living dead had on um on the walking dead obviously tony todd had already been in quite a few movies and tv shows including an early role in oliver stone's platoon back in 1986 but it wasn't until he played the title character in 1992's Candyman that he was really thrust into the pantheon of horror, horror stardom tom savini's night of the living dead was two years before and gave us a good view of todd's acting chops i couldn't agree more and todd tony todd kicks so much ass as ben especially after everything that happens with the with the um uh where where Tom and Judy uh played by William Butler um that when when the the barbecue happens and he has to make it back to the farmhouse two things that they really amp up in this remake um Tony Todd is like such a kick ass dude he's even more kick ass than Ben in the original 
down to when he's fighting them and he does this little judo kick thing to the zombies. Oh no, you know what he does? He like he like rolls his body weight into the into the zombies as like or the, or the whatever the ghouls, uh, knocking their legs out, causing them to fall down. Like this is so great, so wonderful. Um, or when uh, the the house catches fire for a minute and he just smacks he smacks the fire, causing it to go out. He's a badass dude. Tony Todd is such a badass in this role. You know, truly, truly. Um, and, uh, he really just sort of, he, he really just, uh, 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 perfects what Dwayne Dro Jones had, uh, established, you know, um, what else was I going to say? It ironically prefigures Candyman's hook for a hand as the first time we see Todd's character, the camera shows just his shoes and the metal hook of the crowbar he's carrying. That's right. I love the way that they show him. He comes running up and he rails over a zombie and then he comes, steps out of the car. It's just so badass. Smoking a cigarette. Todd plays the role of Ben, which had previously been carried by Dwayne Jones in Romero's original. While the dynamics of race and class warfare from Romero's films, Romero's film are certainly still present here. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. And then obviously Harry Cooper is also such a scumbag. He's an asshole in the first one. But, you know, the thing about the original is even though Harry Cooper is a, is a dickhead and like, like, like such a, such a, um, such a pathetic guy, he's still a dude who's, he's, he's a dude who's trying to protect his own family. You know, he's trying to save his, he's trying to save his ass and he's trying to kind of save his family's ass. Um, but he needs to be in charge. I mean, again, you can literally, you can literally pour, I could, I could write essays. I did in college. I wrote my thesis paper was about Night of the Living Dead. It was 20 pages um, for, for my uh, film history class. Um, he's so much more of a dick. In, in they, they really make him super unlikable. He's unlikable in the original. But again, like you say, he, he does these things for his family. In this one, you don't get that sense at all. He's just a real, as he says in the film, he's a cuckoo. He's a cuckoo. Um, the clash between Tony uh, Tony Todd's Ben and the blowhard Harry Cooper character, originally played by Carl Hartman, uh, here played by Tom Towles, takes on more of an air of machismo and joint stubbornness. Yes, I would say that's true. Todd handles all the shades and complexities of Ben's character, which would have eas been easy to position as a cut-and-dry hero. In an interview with Daily Dead, Savini recalled casting Todd for the role. Tony Todd came in for the audition I handed him the script and he walked outside for five minutes and then came back in without the script. He knew all the dialogue and produced tears. I closed the book right then and there and said, this is Ben. Barbara says what we're all thinking. And it's true, man. Barbara definitely says what, what we're all, what, what we're all thinking. Yes. PTS for sure. Tony Todd is great. Um, perhaps the biggest change between George Romero's 19, 68 original classic and the Tom Savini's 1990 remake is the shift in Barber from near catatonic victim to take charge action hero. As part of the transformation, Patricia Tallman's Barbara goes to deliver the lines that we've all thought as we watch Romero's slow shuffling zombie hordes, both in his own films and countless imitators over the years. They're so slow, she points out, as the zombies approach the isolated farmhouse where they've all holed up. We could just walk right past him. We wouldn't even have to run. We could just walk right past him. If we're careful, we could get away. And that is true in the original. However, very quickly, the house gets surrounded. Very quickly. And that's the thing about the zombies. That's what makes the zombie menace so deadly. It's insidious. They look slow. 
You spend so much time arguing with the people inside the farmhouse about what to do that by the time you look outside again, they've all surrounded the farmhouse. They've creeped up. You know, they're, 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 they storm the farmhouse and it's in, it's inescapable. You know, it's inescapable. My dream is to remake Night of the Living Dead. It's my number one, like, and, you know, and I love that it got adapted into a play because it is a play. That's the, that's the beauty. It's like the perfect micro budget film too. Like you would never even need to see a zombie until the third act of the film. Which is something I've often said about The Battery, which is another zombie film. If you have not seen, you must check out The Battery. It's awesome. Um, but yes, they are so slow. It would be easy to get away. And she does that. She puts that to the test. She she just walks right by him. She's got her gun. She's got her bullets. And you know what's funny? By that time, <laughs> cool jitsu. He's referring to Tony Todd uh, when Tony Todd fights. Um, by that time, I almost feel like like if everything feels so safe, though, that's part of the problem. This film feels very safe to me. I, I, not, nobody ever – I don't feel the danger with 1990. That's part of my issue with, with, with this film. Uh, I do agree with this. It says the zombie effects I, – I agree and disagree with this. The zombie effects are stunning and genuinely horrifying. This is true, but also, like, there's no gore. You know, the, the zombies look great, as they should, you know, this being a Tom Savini vehicle. But, like, where's the gags? Like, you would imagine that you would take all of the Dawn gags they did, all the Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead gags that they had done, and then amped it up to another level. And in 1990, they have a decent budget. Like I said, we're at the height of practical practical effects, you know? And there's something, as as most genre and horror horror fans agree that nothing you know cgi can't there's nothing that cgi can replace or cgi cannot replace uh the wonders of practical effects you know that's just the truth of the matter so there's that george romero famously uses actual intestines from a butcher shop and chocolate syrup to create the gruesome effects in his 1968 original by 1990 however special effects in horror films we're operating at a whole other level, and that was thanks in part to, to the work of Tom Savini, who had provided makeup and other special effects for several Romero films, including Martin, Creepshow, and both Dawn and Day of the Dead, not to mention plenty of other horror classics. For his own take on Night of the Living Dead, Savini went all out with the zombies, at least in so much as truncated filming, as his truncated filming schedule and the MPAA would allow. So there you go. The MPAA also at the height of their powers probably really, really, really had a tight leash on Tom. And yes, this is supposed to be like a commercially viable film. This is not a film that they want to release unrate, unrated like they did with Dawn of the Dead. They're really trying to get a, a wide release of this film. So that probably neutered the film quite a bit. Savini would later recall the making of the film as the worst nightmare of my life. Let's explore why that was after we finish this article. Oh, no. Oh, no. We lost it. Hey, we lost it. You know, my hands were just slapped all over the place, Silvini explained. I couldn't do a lot of stuff. The movie is about 40% of what I intended. So there you go. That actually answers my question. The movie, movie is about 40% of what I intended. It would have been much better. It would have been a much better movie if I had gotten to put all the stuff I really wanted to do. Man, the MPAA hit us hard. 
you know, with my name on it and George Romero, they were waiting for us. Yeah. Okay. So there, that explains, that explains my question that I just had. Why isn't this film gorier? Why aren't there more gags? And that's because of, of what, what Tom is saying right now. Uh, what was originally going to have been a 10-week post-production period was abruptly shortened to four when Columbia bought the rights to distribute the film. And the MPAA forced a number of excisions of bloody sequences for the film. So somewhere out there, somewhere out there, there might be a bloodier cut of Night of the Living Dead 1990. And I hope that we get to see it. That's why I'm I got to see this work print. If anybody has any beads on where I can watch the work print, I am like thirsty as hell for that. Let me know. Uh, Ill message 77 says, how about Bill Mosley and the zombie against the headstone? I would prefer that to CGI any day. Seriously, dude, totally agree. Totally 100% agree with what you're saying. And th yes, that was a good gag. But again, think about all of the things, all the places that they could have gone. This is, Tom Savini and George Romero in 1990 with Colum Columbia distributing more money. And as we know, this works. We're seeing right now what happened, why that didn't get to, to go down. Uh, even with the missing footage, however, the zombies in Savini's night are gruesome and in the extreme often look like real corpses. That is 100% true. Totally agree with that. In fact, to create the zombies, the effects artists attended an autopsy, leafed through forensic pathology texts, and consulted footage from concentration camps in World War II. Yikes. The film is both faithful to and subversive to the original. One million percent. Hold on. Let's see. Oh, this is the interview. This is the interview from 2004 or 2003. Um, let's see what he says about Night of Living Dead. Let's see if we can find anything. Sorry, guys, we're taking a quick detour here. Night of the Living Dead. Oh, here we go. I know it was over a decade ago, but could you? Uh, but you got the privilege and the challenge of remaking the greatest American horror film ever made. Could you briefly sum up what the experience of remaking Night of the Living Dead was like, Tom? It was the worst nightmare of my life. No, I still have nightmares of being on the set directing that movie. It all started before the movie. It was a plethora of why and how dare you. I'm getting the same slack now because I'm in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, listen, the thing that kept me going on the Night of the Living Dead set was that George asked me to do the FX on the original film back in 1968. But I was in Vietnam when he shot that. You know, I had enlisted in the army and they called me in. So what kept me going to the set was that I realized I didn't get to do the first movie and now I am directing the remake. My problem with the remake and the reason I call it a nightmare is because, you know, I had a lot of ideas. I had lots of ideas. I had some 800 storyboards. He had 800 storyboards. Uh, and the whole movie was actually shot on paper. See, George Romero wasn't there. George was off in Florida writing The Dark Half. I got stuck with these two idiot producers that didn't know anything and their careers prove it. And you know, I didn't want to make their bad movie for them. You know, my hands were just slapped all over the place and I couldn't do stuff. The movie is about 40% of what I intended. It would have been a much better movie if I had gotten to put all the stuff I really wanted to do. Put in all the stuff I really wanted to do. Then the MPAA hit us hard. You know, with my name on it and George Romero, they were waiting for us. And that made us cut some more stuff. So it's kind of a sterile film. That's the perfect way to describe it. It's a sterile film. 
with mine and George's, George's name on it, and that's not what fans expected. Hmm. Well, Tom, I'm telling you one thing. I, I really, I'll tell you one thing I really liked about the remake is especially with the Barbara character, it's very obvious that you tried to make her a, more, a much stronger character than the original, and I think that really shined through. I also think you did a great job showing the inhumanities of people torturing the zombies at the end of the film. Yes, that's true. Uh, Tom, you get a bit of a sequel at the end of the remake. Well, in the original film, Barbara is just there most of the film. Uh, she just gets pulled away into the zombie mob. We don't see what actually happens to her. We do. I mean, we it's implied. She's eaten. I've always I've always thought, and I know that John Russo or somewhere that someone wrote a short story. She doesn't actually die. There's a there's a literary sequel where she actually she survives that and she, you know, uh, there's like a whole aftermath. But as far as I'm concerned, is that self-contained? When you think about that self-contained film, she 100% got eaten. She 100% gets eaten at the end. No, not a doubt in my mind. Um, we don't see what actually happens to her. I, I mentioned to George, why doesn't she just come back and help these people out? And he wrote it in. Um, Gary, I assume that since you worked with George Romero so many times, you guys are at least pretty good friends. I've read George has a script ready for the next dead movie. All right. Yeah. We, blah, 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 blah. Um, Gary, what are your feelings? Oh, I don't want to see this film remade. Sorry about Dawn of the Dead now. All right. That's enough of that. That's enough of that. So back to this. The film is both faithful to and subversive of the original. Why, re, uh, why remake what is already considered by many to be a basically perfect film? Exactly. That's my point. That's my, what, what, if you go back to the beginning, again, I know I've been like, not like, like talking very well tonight. I just don't have it. I don't know what it is. I just don't have the words aren't coming to my mouthpiece the way they normally do. Nothing is flowing out the way that I want. I'm very disappointed with my uh, performance tonight, if I'm being honest with you. And I'm being very forthright about that. Um, but that's what I was saying at the beginning. If you go back and you, you you look, why remake a perfect movie? For George Romero, the answer was partially to settle a score. Well, Night of the Living Dead was a big success when it was released back in 1968. Romero and his investors didn't see very much of that money, and the film infam infamously fell almost immediately into public domain when a copyright notice wasn't included. This led to years of lawsuits with the film's distributors and a settlement that Romero's company was unable to collect because the distributor declared bankruptcy. Um, now, here's the one thing. The reason why Night of Living Dead is as famous and revered and regarded as it is, is because it went into public domain. So it's kind of a catch-22. Had they retained the rights to the film, A, not nearly, I don't think people would have been, would have made, the, the universe that we have now of, of, of dead films would not exist. It would be much less uh, because the film would have been seen less. It might've been a more obscure film. It probably would have played some drive-ins and that would have been that. And maybe it would have been a classic, but it wouldn't have been a masterpiece. The fact that it was thrown into the public domain. I mean, Night of Living Dead is part of the, the pop culture. It's part of, it's, it's in pop. It's in the DNA of pop culture, man, Night of Living Dead. You know, when you think about horror as a, as an entity, as a genre, one of the, the the legs that supports it is the film Night of the Living Dead in 1968. And that comes from the fact that it was so widely accessible. Now, do I th think that justifies it being in the public domain? Most certainly not. 
You know, I think that's terrible what happened. But does it, does it, it is kind of a catch 22 in that maybe it wouldn't have been as successful had it not been in the public domain. Um, which again, like I said, also additionally, you know, it got shown around the world, constantly being shown. Why? Because it was a, a, an interesting film that happened to be in a place where people could unethically uh, exhibit the picture and make money off of it without having to get permission from the filmmakers, which, like I said, is both a tragedy. It, it, it's akin to this. Imagine if somebody's film came out today and then was instantaneously torrented, but it became a big hit because so many people had seen it via piracy and maybe it never would have been. No, that's a terrible example. That doesn't work. I was just thinking about that. That doesn't work. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, bad example. Bad example. I, I take back what I just said. It doesn't work because no, 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 no. That's stupid. It's just stupid all around. Um, when Night of the Living Dead was a big success when it was released back in 19... Oh, I already said, read that part. It was more. It was about more than just money, though. For Romero and John Russo, who co-wrote the original script and served as a producer on the 1990 version, remaking the film was also about doing it right uh, before someone beat them to the punch. They changed the name. That helped. Yeah. For Tom Savini, it was about realizing a lifelong ambition. Uh, listen, the thing that kept me going on that Night of the Living Dead set was that George, we already read this, that George had asked me to do the effects in the original back in 1968, blah, 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 but he was in Vietnam. The result for zombie fans, though, is the film that simultaneously true to the original and subverts it in, a, in startling and unique ways. The undertones of racism and classism from the original film remain, but Barbara's character has been Ramboized for the post-feminist audience and turned into a ghoul-killing machine, as the Los Angeles Times put it when the film was still in production. The, 19, uh, the 1990 version of Night also subverts the original ending of the film in which Dwayne Jones Ben is shot by a posse who mistakes him for a ghoul. In this version, but again, like if, you, if that movie was made today, that would be the excuse that the posse uses when they are on trial. They would say, we thought he was a ghoul, but they shot him because he was black. And that's what makes Night of the Living Dead so revolutionary and timeless and such a commentary on the underbelly of what is going on in this country, if you're asking me personally. Um, in this version, Barbara survives and Ben does rise as a zombie. It's actually Cooper who makes it through to the end when Barbara returns as part of the posse and takes out Cooper who previously left her to perish, telling the rest of the posse that he's another one for the fire. It's great. And that's great. And you want to know something? I wouldn't want the original to end in any other way, but if you're going to remake the movie, you have to surprise us. You have to surprise us somehow. And that's what it does in subverting expectations. We are surprised by, we were, we're expecting to get what we got in 1968, and then we get this, and it leaves, it takes us completely at surprise. It's ironic. Um, it, it just totally works. So if anything, the only thing I disagree with what's being written right now, I do think the, the, the classism and racism and all that stuff, all those social issues, they take a backseat to, to Barbara's character. Because Barbara's character gets fleshed out more, uh, the, the, 
in turn, we get more focus on that stuff than the Ben and Harry stuff. It's still there. Oh, believe me, it's still there. But it takes a backseat at the end when those guys start fighting each other, I think, a little bit. Um, further, future Rob Zombie collaborators, Bill Mosley and Tom Towles both appear. So uh, Ill Message 77, I don't know if you're still here, but here you go. Modern-day horror fans probably know Bill Mosley best as Otis Driftwood from Rob Zombie's trilogy of films following the homicidal Firefly clan. But before that, though, he was Chop Chop. He was Chop Top in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And very briefly, he played Barbara's jerk brother, Johnny, in Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead. Although he never actually comes back as a zombie. We just see him in, in the truck, right? We see him in the truck at the end. They changed the name. That helped. Um, oh, right. We already read that part. Uh, Tom Towles, on the other hand, had previously played a character, ironically enough, named Otis in John McNaughton's Henry. That's right. That's right. I forgot that he's, um, oh, my God, he plays Otis in, in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and that movie is bone-chilling. That's the only true crime film that I have watched more than one time and, like, really regard as, like, a masterpiece. Um, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. B brilliant film. Brilliant, brilliant film. As a matter of fact, I think Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is so brilliant that it really, like, you don't ever need to explore that sort of idea, concept with any other film. I'd just be like, no, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, perfect film. Don't, don't, the book has been written on it. They're like, just leave it alone. You know what I mean? Uh, I forgot that that's, that, I didn't realize it was him, though. Um, towels. After playing the difficult abusive and boorish Harry Cooper in Night of the Living Dead 1990. Towels also went on to work with Rob Zombie. But he plays Deputy George Wendell in both House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil Rejects. And I didn't, you know, it's funny. He looked super familiar to me in those films when I saw Rob Zombie's films, but I couldn't put my finger on where I knew him from. Um, and he also worked on Zombie's Halloween remake and his grindhouse trailer, Werewolf Woman of the SS. Uh, you get Heather Mazur as the zombified Sarah Cooper. Heather Mazur as the zombified Sarah Cooper is pure nightmare fuel. She is absolutely one of the best zombies in this film. She's terrifying, dude. She's like, She's like freaky deaky, man. Freaky deaky. Just like in George Romero's original when Barbara and Ben stumble upon the isolated farmhouse that serves as the, serves as the film's primary setting, there, uh, there are already some people hiding out in the basement. One of those people is a little girl who has been bitten by one of those zombies and is, as we all know by now, therefore turning into a zombie herself. In the 1990 version, she is played by a young Heather Mazur, a Pittsburgh native, native who's gone on to do a slew of television work just 13 years old at the time of film filming mazur has no spoken lines in the movie but nonetheless has quite an impact when she rises during the film's climax the gray-faced blank-eyed ghoul she becomes complete with braces on her teeth is one of the most striking and spooky uh, film filled in a film filled with shambling undead in various stages of disintegration could not agree more donald donald says this i donald that's that's crazy man i mean i believe it i believe it henry spoiled other serial killer movies for me i could i could imagine because it's so real when somebody 
when they murder people in Henry Porch of a Serial Killer, there is nothing theatrical about these murders. They feel so real. It's so stark and real and, and serious and deadly. Uh, one of my film professors was the sound recordist on that film, actually. Uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Um, so yeah, she does. Uh, trivia question. Does anybody know what the, the uh, Sarah Cooper in the original Night of the Living Dead 1968 has one line. She says one line in the film and that is I hurt. That's all she says. When her mom and dad, uh, Henry, uh, Harry and Helen are comforting her and she says I hurt. Something like that. And that's it. That's that's the only time you ever hear her say anything. Uh, Pittsburgh TV staple Chili Billy Cardill makes a cameo. He's in the original Night of the Living Dead. Um, he's he's known as Chili Billy, was a, was a local uh, television personality and host of the Chiller Theater Show, which ran for more than two decades. As part of the show, Cardill and his Chili Billy horror host persona would provide suitable, campy introductions to the creaky old horror movies that played in the show's time slot. He also helped to raise money for the original Night of the Living Dead. Um, we were upstarts trying to make a little horror film, uh, and he basically plugged us up almost every week, Romero told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in, in memory of Cardill after he died. He was an incredible, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, is it Cardile or Cardill? I always thought it was Cardill. He was an incredible supporter. I really gave Bill uh, a large part of the credit for me being here at all. Um, Bill also played himself in the film. In 1985, Romero cast his daughter, Lori, as the lead in Day of the Dead. And that is the proto-Barbara in Night of the Living Dead 1990. Because Lori kicks all kinds of ass in Day of the Dead. She's just this awesome, she's just this awesome feminine, you know, heroine. Um, in 1990, Tom Savini got Chili Billy uh, himself to appear in his remake of Night of the Living Dead, where he's a brief cameo as a television interviewer, a job that Billy actually did for much of his life. It was a bit of a homecoming for Savini, who had been a fan of the Chili Theater show and had spent uh, time on set as a youngster. Did anybody know that George Romero um, just dug out Fangoria number 97 with Night of Living Dead remake on the cover. Wow. Donald, sounds like you have some collection of Fangorias. That's awesome. Um, there's a reference to the Mary Celeste ghost ship. Interesting. In 1872, the crew... Here, I'm going to make this a little bigger. In 1872, the crew of the Del Gracia discovered a ship floating in the Atlantic Ocean. The ship was the Mary Celeste, which had left the harbor in New York eight days before. There was no one on board, even though the ship was seaworthy and amply provisioned, and its cargo was intact. From there, the Mary Celeste became one of the most infam infamous nautical mysteries of all time, so much so that Tom Savini decided to pay homage to the ship in Night of the Living Dead, where the farmhouse bears a prominently featured plaque with the words M. Celeste outside the front door. In the commentary track on the DVD of the film, Savini confirmed that there was an intentional nod to the famous ghost ship and the other details like the food that was still cooking on the stove and the cigar still smoking. That's an interesting, this is, this is the cool stuff. I love this stuff about filmmaking, how he's inspired by the ship and then tries to sort of superimpose some of those details in this farmhouse. You know what I mean? Like taking it from the, the sea to the land. 
that's that's the beauty of filmmaking. You know, filmmaking is this multimedia collaborational sort of medium where you you get to add all you get to do there are all sorts of things. You have sound and picture and light and 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 you know sculpture in terms of like you know whether you're sculpting um the edit or you're sculpting props to go in the background or you're sculpting a performance as a director or you're sculpting light for the background of your scene. Um, you're doing a lot of, of artistic work or whether it's sculpting a script, you know, that kind of thing. Um, in the commentary track on the DVD of the film, Savini confirmed that this was an intentional nod to the famous ghost ship and other details like food. Right, 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 right. And cigars still smoldering in the ashtrays, blah, 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 blah. In the seemingly abandoned farmhouse were also intended to refer, uh, were intended to reference the mystery of the Mary Celeste. No such details were actually found aboard the ship itself, but they were often added to, to fictionalized accounts over the years. Savini also references the Philadelphia experiment. Inside the farmhouse in Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead, there's a photograph on the wall depicting a naval ship. Specifically, the ship is the, spe the specific. <laughs> Specifically, the ship is the USS Eldridge, the vessel that was supposedly turned invisible or cloaked as part of the alleged Philadelphia experiment in 1948. Some viewers have hypothesized that the presence of the photograph may be a hint that some sort of secret government project was the cause of the zombie uprising, or more, or maybe like a reference to the famous ghost ship that the Mary Celeste on the outside of the house, it is simply just another omen that, ugh, sorry, suck at reading tonight. Uh, simply another omen that strange things are afoot. It was produced by Manaheim Golan of Golan Globus. For fans of schlocky B pictures, the name Manaheim Golan will be immediately familiar. Along with his cousin, Yoram Globus, Golan released a whole heap of cheaply made genre pictures under a variety of banners, including Canon Films, titles ranging from Blood on Satan's Claw to the entire American Ninja series to the 1987 Masters of the Universe movie with Dolph Lundgren and Frank Lagella. 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 All bore the imprint of these two producers. Working with Golan wasn't exactly a walk in the park for director Tom Savini, though Though I got stuck with these two idiot producers that didn't know anything and their careers prove it, and you know I didn't want to make their bad movie for them, he told Film Monthly. It is unclear exactly which two producers Savini was talking about, but the film, is credited, the film however, is credited with seven. But one of them may well have been uh, Golan. The film's other producers include John Russo, who co-wrote the original film with George Romero, Romero himself, and Russ Striner, who played Johnny in the original Night of the Living Dead and had a cameo in the 1990 version. Whew. Guys, I am sorry. I am just, I am just not myself tonight. <clears throat> but I'm trying my best. That's all I can do. Um, if you enjoyed this content, please like, share, subscribe, leave a comment. Um, Freaking, uh, you know, I try to do this every, uh, yeah, I try to do it every day, or I try to upload at least one thing every day, as I've said. Um, but I took took a couple days off. I got more new shows coming, more topics. If you like horror stuff, please explore my 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 channel. There is so much uh, Living Dead related stuff. I, as much as I love Night of Living Dead, I am obsessed 
with Return of the Living Dead. So check out the commentaries and stuff I have on there. Any um, questions, comments, any sort of thing to keep the dialogue going before we end this? Anybody want to add anything that maybe uh, might not have been mentioned? As I have stated, I love the idea of Night of the Living Dead so much. I think it's a great setup. I think it's a setup that doesn't necessarily need zombies. You know, it doesn't have to always be zombies. There's so many things you could do. You know, it's just about putting a bunch of people in, trapped in a, in a place and having them try to figure out what to do, how to get out of it, how to get out of the the, the problem. Uh, Donald says, that's a lot of good information. Got me thinking. Ah, I'm glad to hear that, man. Um, Ill Message 77 says, um, whenever having a friendly chat with Mr. Savini, don't ask him about his movie, The Ripper. He got mad at me. I think. Thanks, bro. Good show. Hey, man, thanks for watching. I really appreciate it. Uh, now I have to look up The Ripper. I think I've heard this about him, actually, The Ripper. Hold on, guys. We're, we're going to The Ripper right now. Let's take a look. The Ripper. <clears throat> um, I've also said this. I've said this often before. I'm going to say it again right now. There's a lot of, you know, the Living Dead universe is vast, but I have always thought that Return of the Living Dead is a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead. It is and a legitimate sequel at that. That's how you have to think about Return of the Living Dead. So the next time you watch Return of the Living Dead, think about it as a direct sequel of Night of the Living Dead, and it will kind of blow your mind. Let's hear Tom Savini, The Ripper. Okay, it's from 1985. So that's what he was doing in 1985 here. I'm going to share my screen just for a second. There we go. Ah, The Ripper. Is he starring it too? Mm. Okay, it's directed by Christopher Lewis and it stars Tom Savini. Huh. Well, look at that. Oh, he looks pretty gnarly there. I've always thought that Tom Savini kind of looks like uh, <clears throat> the drummer of. Look, doesn't this look like Tom Savini? Oh, no, that's not Tom Savini. Carmine. Swear to God. <laughs> Anytime I see him, I'm always like, wait a minute. That's Tom Savini. And he's like, no, it's not. That's uh, the drummer of, of he's the drummer of Black Sabbath, um, a bunch of stuff. Uh, Heaven and Hell, they're brothers, Vinny and Carmine. A piece, a piece, a piece, something like that. Um, I guess Tom Savini does not like the Ripper, though. Interesting. I did not know that. Let's let's read more about it. Why is that, dude? Tom Savini looks just like him. It's crazy. Uh, someone says Tom Savini. How did he end up in this loser? Let's see here. Does anybody know where I can watch the work print of Night of the Living Dead, the remake? Because I would love to see that. Love to watch that. Tom Savini was embarrassed by his involvement with this film when he attended a 1996 Fangoria Weekend of Horrors convention. Part of his routine there included playfully getting on his knees to beg for forgiveness from horror fans at the gathering. It was also reported on a recounting of the events at the convention in a future issue of Fangoria a few months later. Huh. Um, let's see if there's anything else here. 
According to the DVD commentary track, director Christopher Lewis chose special effects makeup artist Tom Savini uh, in one of his acting roles from the suggestion of the Ripper's own special effects makeup artist crew a few days before the shoot, uh, shoot commenced. They were, they were fans of his. They spoke on the phone soon after. Savini was paid 15 grand, according to the DVD commentary, and flown, uh, flown in for only one night of work at Tulsa. Wow. So he's only in the film. He only shot one night and was paid 15 grand. Savini later complained to Christopher Lewis that the body double of Jack the Ripper on all other non-Savini scenes throughout the movie looked very little like him, if any. Um, Carmine, he's in Ozzy's bar, uh, Bark at the Moon video. Right. Interesting. Yeah, he was in Vanilla Fudge. All I did was ask where I could get a copy. That's hilarious. And what was his response? Uh, Ill Message 77. What was his response to that? Yes, Donald, I am familiar with the documentary on Canon Films. I have not seen it, but I definitely want to check that out. Lots of lots of clunkers. Lots of interesting clunkers in that. Um, so, so, yeah. So he's not a fan. Wow. I can't believe he only worked one night on the film. So they used a body double. They probably had to pay the body double a lot less. It's probably cheaper to get to get Savini for one day. You know, that's what they do. A lot of these uh, micro-budget films or like, not micro-budget, but like low-budget films, what they do is a lot of these actors, Tony Todd, Jeffrey Combs, a lot of these guys, they have uh, special weekend rates. So what you can do is you can... You can um, book the actor for a weekend, and Eric Roberts is a great example of that as well. You you book these actors for the weekend. You shoot a, like a ton of scenes. Nicholas Cage, another example. You shoot a ton of scenes with these guys. Although Nicholas Cage is more pricey, um, but Nicholas Cage will you know if you can make his make his rate his fee whatever he'll he'll probably be in any film. He doesn't turn down roles. You shoot all of their scenes. Um, you know, in a 72 hour period, and then you build out the movie and, and then you say the movie is starring that actor. And then that's how you get, you know, distribution on, on the name. You're basically paying for the name kind of. Um, Donald says Ripper was great. Got to watch it again. Ha. Um, dirty, dirty look and threw my autograph photo of himself at me after he signed it. Ouch. You know, ill message. Maybe he, Maybe he just thought, maybe he thought, I'm not saying this was your intention, but maybe he just thought you were fucking with him. Maybe he thought you were just like, you know, um, making him feel like, you know, trying to, trying to um, troll him or something, you know, maybe he had been trolled about it in the past. You know, that's a thing about people of note or people who are like famous or whatever, you know, they do this stuff like all the time, every day. It's your one moment in time with them, but for them, it's one of a thousand moments and who knows what his mood was at that particular day. And then you asked him about a very touchy subject, even if you didn't know it was a touchy subject for him at the time. And that might be why you got that sort of response. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but maybe, you know, who knows? Okay. You're, you admit to totally being an asshole. So there you go. So you got, so, so you got what was coming. You got, you, you, you knew what you were doing. You knew what you were doing. That's, that's okay though. I'm sure he's forgotten all about it, but you, you remember it forever and are re regaling me with it right now. However many years later it is. Um, 
but yeah, I learned that the hard way. You know, you, you never know what these guys are going through. And then like you catch them on one bad day and you say the one wrong thing and you get a, a negative, you get a negative experience instead of what should be, or what you're hoping to be a positive experience. And that sucks. It sucks when that happens. Um, you know, Whew. Sorry, guys. I just don't have it in me tonight. I, I really, you know, I'm kind of bummed the way that all, that whole this whole thing came out. I, I I wanted to do so much more. I was really going to make a meal out of that, and I feel like I just didn't wasn't able to communicate my thoughts in a clear, cohesive, concise manner the way that I wanted to. Um, and I'm sorry I keep bringing it up, but I'm just like obsessing over it. It just sucks when it, when, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm just, I'm firing on all cylinders and other nights, not so much. Tonight is not one of those nights. Um, I'm going to try and do a bunch of broadcasts this week though. I'm, I'm going to really try and do more. And the other thing that I plan to do, so check out on my channel. There is here, I'll, I'll, I'll link it up right now. Uh, we did a commentary on Return of the Living Dead, me and... If you know uh, JV Bastard from the band Mr. Monster, we did our – here, I'll put it in the comments. That is our commentary track on Return of the Living Dead. Now, we got flagged by YouTube for using the actual movie. We got in trouble. Um, so what I'm hoping will happen, because Night of the Living Dead is still technically in the public domain, I'm hoping that we can get away – with with uh without getting you know flagged by the content id the way we did with return of the living dead so we'll see hey i'm i th- i'm glad i'm glad you came on man and i'm glad you're enjoying this if this is your first first time at one of my my broadcasts check out listen if you're a fan of the misfits or sam Hain or danzig or uh return of the living dead or just you know pop culture in general i got tons and tons of videos please subscribe to my content um always always putting stuff out uh, to entertain you while you're at work, while you know your 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 commute, your drive home, that sort of thing. I'm actually going to end this broadcast in 30 seconds. I was waiting for some of you know that I like to round things off to perfect numbers, so I'm going to do that right now. Um, so please tune in this week. I got new episodes, new content is coming, and thanks for spending a Sunday evening with me. I'm going to go watch the uh, second episode of. Uh, Pharaoh versus Allen. Um, as we always say on this show, thank you, Donald. Donald says, great show. As we always say on this show, peace and